you know, now I can have the potentiality of turning uh, what originally was just the Nathan Tankis show into a full-fledged publication that becomes a platform for alternative economics ideas for the big audience that I now have. Welcome to the Substack Podcast, where we have conversations with independent writers, bloggers, thinkers, and creatives of every background. Hi, Nathan. Thanks for coming on the Substack Podcast. Thanks for having me. So you write um, Notes in the Crises, which covers, in your words, the um, play-by-play of the current pandemic-induced global depression and how uh, policy policymakers should respond to that. Um, I remember seeing your name pop up around mid-March. Uh, you started your newsletter on Substack at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic in the United States. What prompted you to start writing? Well, I hadn't really been paying attention. I had a lot of other things going on, uh, you know, a lot of other things I was focused on. I hadn't really been paying attention to what was going on. Um, sort of vaguely knew what was going on, especially because I was following uh, the Democratic primary, but not in detail. And then March 9th um, was kind of the first sign where I got a, got a wake-up call about what was, going, what was going on. And that was when free market trading, I believe it's Sunday, March 9th, get that right um on u.s treasury securities um went the prices went way up which means the interest rates went way down you actually temporarily um hit uh negative interest rates on uh some u.s treasury securities and that really made my eyes open up wide and wonder really want to try to understand exactly what was going on. Um, and around the same time, the oil price uh, collapsed. And the, those things were signals to me because generally um, U.S. Uh, the interest rates on U.S. Treasury securities fall because people expect that the Federal Reserve is going to cut interest rates for a, lo- uh, for a lot and that they're going to hold them uh, low or at zero for a long period of time. So And Generally, the Federal Reserve does that when there is a big recession. Um, so that was the signal to, oh, you know, time to put the market stuff aside and put whatever else was going on in my life aside and figure out, well, wait, what actually is going on here? Um, what, uh, what is the, why is there a big de- uh, depression coming? You know, started reading up, thinking about coronavirus and starting thinking through the implications of what we really were facing, you know, read some of the uh, epidemiology literature about in the projections of what was going on, especially uh, uh, the the College of London study that came out early on, and that made me really wake up and think this is the big one, and no one in my life really gets it. None of the people who are not outside of economic of the economics world really get it, and even the people within that economics world who I regularly engage with, they aren't fully, you know, taking seriously the implications of what was going on. And no one was really being paid to really spend all their time to focus and do that. And I had been thinking about starting a Substack for a while um, to produce my own commentary, but had some other projects that I wanted to finish first. But this seemed to take precedence for me over all of that. And it was time to just try to get out and get out early and try to do as much as I could to find what was happening. 
It's sort of like the perfect research problem, I feel like, because you're already well positioned to be thinking about the kind of stuff you were working in a research capacity already, right? Um, and this is sort of like the most timely thing, I guess you could just focus in on full time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's nothing, I mean, you know, the, there are a lot of, of course, crises are terrible things, but the one thing that, you know, analysts kind of really relish in a crisis is it's very easy to make a crisis your full-time job and analyzing what's going on in a crisis of your full-time job. And because it's such a timely and urgent issue, there are people who are always willing to uh, have these conversations with you, to argue with you. I mean, it's just it's just the perfect instigator for public conversation and, and debate. And, you know, with the collapse of, of, uh, of journalism and the way that economic policy is really structured in the United States. Um, there was a real gap that that I could fill, and you know, I think the my experience over the last uh, what is it uh, four months, uh, a little over four months, really shows that I was that uh that I was right in in my estimate that you know if I started writing right then, it would really be uh uh be some something that I could uh define define uh, a real turning point in my career for. Which seems to be playing out already. I mean, it couldn't have played out much beyond I could have ever imagined. I mean, really? I had some sense, but I, I really have had no, I mean, as you know, I announced recently, um, planning on turning Notes on the Crisis into a full-fledged publication. I'm hiring guest writers and hired an investigative journalist. Um to investigate uh, some some things around uh, the uh, state unemployment insurance systems for me, and you know, I just could never imagine uh, having the resources to do that before this. You know, I sort of had the idea, you know, I could have a decent, nice income, like you know, the Bloomberg profile t- talks about, um, and so you know, everything from the Bloomberg profile on me since has uh, um, changed the scale of what I could what I could do. Yeah, you've had a really in- incredibly trajectory. I've an entire section of this interview devoted just to talking about the Bloomberg profile, so I'm excited to <laughs> dig into all, all of that with you. Um, I'm, I'm curious, you, you're saying that uh, you felt like when you started writing that no one you really knew was talking about it, um, and also nobody in even the economic circles that you were talking about. When you started writing, were you thinking of having this be really for the economic circles that you were involved in or to kind of make this entire situation palatable to a broader public audience? Uh, I think I always thought of it as both as really engaging with the people I was in economic policy conversation with and writing broader things, um, making um, making what was going on more accessible. Um, I think, you know, I definitely still thinking of this as a kind of um, two tier um, two tier um, thing Um, on on and on. Um, the implications, um, I mean, the thing is, is that there are people who I think broadly agreed with me uh, about the scale of the crisis, but they're just not writing every day the way that I could. And they didn't have the freedom, even if they could write frequently, they didn't have the freedom to um, kind of take a research perspective of trying to break down all the set of interrelated issues and try to do it um the way I was doing it. I mean, the other thing is that just, I was writing so much that first month. I wrote, um, 21, 
uh, pieces for the Substack, and I wrote one piece for another publication. Um, in 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 a in a month, it was I was writing, I was publishing a piece basically every weekday. Um, at that 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 scale, that pace. I mean, there's just no other publication that's set up um, to to do that kind of thing, and especially not in the freedom that I had to just focus on focus on it and do it the way I wanted to do it. I mean, it was just, uh, you know, it was, it was complete, you know, doing it myself was just complete freedom to, um, define it how I wanted to. And, you know, the other thing is, uh, a lot of what I was doing was repetition, different ways of saying the same thing and, uh, other publications, you know, you're not, you know, it's not necessarily quote unquote news to say the same thing, uh, 10 different ways, but, I felt it was news because you know it's it's one thing to hear that it's the worst you know it's a it's a worse crisis than uh, the Great Depression. It's um and it's one thing to hear it's you know the worst you know worst uh, unemployment situation far worse than than far faster than the Great Recession. But to really understand that to really have a grasp of what that means uh, and the scale of the problem you're talking about, I mean, you can't you can't just read one piece and that explains it to you. You have to it has to be something that you engage with day in and day out for weeks, and then you can fully start to sink in the scale of what we're of what we're talking about. Um, and definitely, when I was starting to write it right around mid March. The scale definitely, even in the economic policy circles, I think, wasn't being taken seriously. Um, I mean, we're still not anywhere near responding to the crisis with the scale that that it requires. You know, I was talking about needing a three trillion um, dollar package just for the first, just for households alone, let alone um, you, uh, let alone uh, state and local governments, and needing at least a trillion for state and local governments just over the first like. Four months, uh, four months ago, or the first, you know six months or so, um, and uh, we still haven't kind of reached that scale. And that definitely was not the economic policy conversation that was happening in, in March. And I was already kind of from from the word go, basically making that point, talking about how the CARES Act, um, the the big thing that Congress ended up passing, which they did pass quickly, and it was far too too small. Um, that definitely was not. Um, the conversation, even among people who understood that we were um, in a big recession. Yeah, it's sort of, um, it's interesting to just think about the opportunity that presents itself when you have these big crises like this. And I mean, this particular pandemic being the most extreme example I could think of where um, it's a time when suddenly everyone that you thought was an authority maybe isn't an authority anymore and uh, no one really knows what's going on and uh, everyone is sort of just like searching around grasping for anyone with like a coherent narrative on on the story and it seems like you were really well positioned to be able to do that yeah and i was well positioned because that was my experience in the last crisis i mean what got me interested in economics was having this feeling that this was the most important thing going on and that the the the, the assigned experts didn't really have a good handle was going on and that was fascinating to me and so you know um and 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 that there's danger in that you know things aren't about crises uh, all the time you know up until this point i don't think we were necessarily um up until the public health uh, crisis i don't think we were necessarily facing some big economic crisis that was happening gonna happen in the next few years um and it's been over a decade since the 2008 crisis so when you when you when you when your introduction is crisis you know there's a danger of expecting crises are going to happen all the time which is something i kind of had to 
be wary of, but um, it was, yeah, but but it is a, a good entering that way. The advantage is that when crises do happen, you are kind of prepared for them, and you you can sort of think about what is often missing um, in the conversation in uh, during those crises, and what uh, uh, what is what would be useful to someone who is just uh, just tr- trying to get a handle on economics and the handle on the crisis, you know, in the moment on the fly. I'm particularly intrigued by this um, lack of gatekeeping that seems to emerge even outside of crisis mode um, in the realm of economics and, and finance related writing. Um, there are just like so many prolific writers that are available at anyone's fingertips on the internet. Um, and we've seen a lot of finance writers on Substack and it feels like there's just this alignment, I guess, with the idea of independent writing and um, and, and this particular area of, of study. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about Bern Hobart, who's another, um, he writes about finance, uh, focus on on business um, on Substack, and he also doesn't have a bachelor's degree and has written about this experience of being hired at a hedge fund without one. Um, why do you think this particular vertical lends itself so well to a lack of gatekeeping? Is it What comes to mind for me is sort of like money as maybe like the ultra, ultimate metric or, or credential, um, but then like is the converse also true where in other fields of study where there aren't these clear metrics or numbers involved, maybe those verticals are more likely to gatekeep than in economics and finance? Um, I think, I think, I mean, I think there's two layers that, I mean, first of all, there's two different kind of things there. There's, 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 um, gatekeeping and credentials in finance, and then there is gatekeeping and credential, credentials in, um, economics and economic policy conversation. They're a little distinct. I think for finance, I think that there is credentials, there is things that people are seeking, um, but they're not necessarily educational credentials. Um, there's a, you know, finance has more of a kind of quirky culture. Um, it sees itself as distinct from uh, from the hierarchies that exist uh, elsewhere in society, um, and so you know, often you know, they they're looking for a certain type of thinker, a certain type of person, ultimately someone who can do the work. Um, that isn't necessarily uh, that has some alternative way of proving their credentials besides an educational credential, um, and, and 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 yeah, and so I think that's you know they're ultimately looking for a product, using, looking for something useful. I think in the economic policy conversation, I think it's less that there aren't gatekeepers, but that there are people who um who 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 can shepherd you you know in the same way that you kind of have a golf club um you don't need to have a golf membership you just need to be brought in by someone with a golf membership who's decides to uh decides to bring you in um i and i think that's kind of what happened in economic policy conversation you know the, uh, uh, someone following you on twitter is a little bit of an endorsement um someone tweeting out your your pieces is is somewhat of an endorsement, um, and sometimes a really strong endorsement. You know, so you know a lot for me was Joe, Joe Weisenthal and Bloomberg. I mean, Joe, Joe. As soon as I started writing, um, you know, we've been friends uh, for a while. People talked and engaged with for a long time, and um, you know, as soon as I started writing, he was super supportive. Tweeted out every piece, um, really, really aggressively, um, and we, along with like the kind of you know the the most extreme praise that you that you can possibly give someone as 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 a writer um and uh 
and you know him and then others um um uh, miles i'm blanking on his his last name uh at yahoo finance um various people um kind of put their um put their weight behind what i was putting out there and people just in, engaging and arguing with me um you know David Beckworth from Mercatus Center, who's quoted in the in the Bloomberg profile, um, did did a big interview with me um, talking about um, Treasury issues and, and the coronavirus crisis um, and, and the Federal Reserve. I mean, I just I had a lot of people who were engaging me and taking me seriously and having these back and forths um, that um, gave me. Legitimacy and and told people signaled that I was someone you really needed to pay attention to. So I mean I think I think that I, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's like that there are no gatekeepers. It's just that the gatekeeper the gatekeeper structure is looser on on Twitter. You know you don't need it's not about you know getting a four year educational credential or we're um, agreeing with this set of analysis as an institution. You know a set of kind of prominent figures can just simply tweet out your tweet out your pieces and that can be uh, sufficient um, engagement legitimacy and so on that makes sense um, and as you're sort of talking through this um, reputation system that exists and you're mostly citing um, people on Twitter or just uh, p- individuals that you're talking to I'm wondering how that parallels the I guess just that like where do you see the overlap of what we think of as quote-unquote trained economists um, versus this study of economics that can sort of take place anywhere? Um, I'm particularly curious for someone like you who spent as much time learning outside of school as in in school, Um, but you also, it it sort of surprised me, you you say that you'd like to study for a PhD in in law at at some point. Um, So it sounds like to some extent you are still bought into the idea of going through maybe like that more formal pathway. but at the same time, it seems like focusing on law is, is like motivated by this desire to understand money through a lens outside of the field of economics. Um, just, I'm, I'm curious, like, what is your take on the um, more, I guess, like distinctly academic field of economics and how that does or doesn't overlap with the reputation system that you're talking about? Um, I think it does overlap. I think, um, I think economists are a little bit on the back foot um, when it comes to the economic policy conversation because the economics profession really has a bad reputation coming out of the 2008 crisis and, you know, people debate how much, how deserved that is. Um, I would say it's, you know, mostly deserved. Um, and so, um, with, you know, obviously exceptions of individual people. Um, and I think that means that economists have a really hard time, um, fully delegitimizing, you know, declaring, oh, this person isn't, is someone who, um, is not worth listening to. And, and, and they, and within economics, they do that to people who are accomplished, um, PhDs, professors all the time. So, you know, whether, you know, whether I, or, you know, someone else who's a close colleague of mine, um, has her credentials a little bit besides the point in terms of, um, the, the hierarchies that people try to enforce within economics and economic policy in the broader space, you know, people are just looking for what's useful. And if I'm saying something useful and people aren't finding this other person's, uh, this, you know, this mainstream economist uh, commentary useful, they're going to, you know, take something from me. Now, there still is, you know, that barrier of, you know, I'm never going to be publicly um, some congressperson's advisor until I have a PhD. That's just, you know, people will talk to me on background. I'll have a a phone call on background with ver- with various people, but 
it's just not possible to really take me on um, as in an advisory capacity, let alone, you know, an actual position um, somewhere. And, you know, that, that, that kind of is still a barrier, you know, I, right now I'm doing these kind of journalistic pieces. Um, People can put me in a category, they can rationalize it to themselves as I'm producing sophisticated economic journalism. And in some case, in some ways I am pursuing doing that rather than kind of engaging these academic debates. Um, And to really, you know, be fully taken seriously in those academic debates, I'm going to need to get a PhD. Um, And I'm also interested in teaching. I'm interested in pedagogy. And so on that level, I'm also interested in um, pursuing a PhD and and, uh, pursuing a professorship position somewhere. Obviously, you know, the subsec has changed that a lot. You know, I don't, I don't need it for any economic reason. Do I, I don't, I, I could very, very easily and very comfortably live on writing, uh, for sub, uh, writing my substack indefinitely into the future. Um, but still I, I would want to do that. And eventually, you know, um, those kind of positions make it much easier to be publicly cited by, uh, by congresspersons and to ultimately, you know, maybe who knows, be be in a position to potentially be up for some sort of um, policy policy job. Hmm. It's interesting to hear you say that. Just, um, I mean, I think my perception is you've written this body of work on Substack that itself could be a research artifact or output that is worthy of something that, um, say, like a PhD would have done. Um, and like, I'm wondering whether maybe have your goals or changed um, just, I guess, maybe like initially, maybe you were just writing for whichever audience was going to listen to you. Um, but now as you're sort of reaching these different sorts of audiences and um, attracting serious interest from, say, government officials, um, do you feel that need for some bigger stamp of approval in order to get to those conversations that you want to have and be in the room of the places you want to be? Um, is, is sort of like that recent success. I, th- I, think, I think that, that I think, I think that was always um, my initial goal. I mean, a, a lot of my, the people, for example, who have free email signups uh, are in government. Um, like I had, I've had eight people from the federal deposit insurance corporation sign up with their FDIC emails um, before the Bloomberg profile came out and a couple more since then. Um, so, you know, my, 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 my government email following was actually pretty prominent um before before the bloomberg profile and so you know for, and i had had i had had done um uh informal zoom call with uh, some some congressional staffers and have had a few calls here and there um with people um uh uh barat who is um one of the commissioners on the coronavirus oversight commission um has been publicly supportive of of my work um already before before anything um came out with uh, the bloomberg profile so i mean i was already kind of thinking in terms of that you know i want to have some influence now and that i want to get a get a government um get 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 a have be able to have more influence on um governmental policy um in terms of getting uh my phd which you know i I already wasn't planning on um doing so and are pursuing more uh, education in the fall, especially with just coronavirus going around, really making that logis- logistically harder. Um, but I do, you know, my plan based on that has not, has not really changed much otherwise, except, you know, 
obviously the Bloomberg profile has given me more opportunities um, of, say, speeding that process up. In your ideal world, would there not be these sorts of barriers um, to kind of getting into those um, next level of conversations that you're you're talking about um, being officially cited on testimonials and things like that? Um, do you think there's a good reason why we do kind of have maintain that separation between independent researchers or journalism or however you want to characterize what you're doing right now um, and the sort of more credentialed needs a PhD kind of thing? Is that the right way for the world to be? Um, I think there is a role for the ed- for the educational credential and the educational institutions, um, especially because so much of um, so so much of the alternative credentials that people are, are rely on are racialized and gendered. Um, like I I wrote, I wrote a thread, you know, responding to the otherwise um, supportive. Bloomberg profile uh, the day it was posted, um, disagreeing with the idea that I have no credentials. I have no educational credentials, and I think that's a careful difference. You know, when I when I was nineteen and I put on um, a dress shirt and a dress slacks and walked into a conference, um, I you know my whiteness, um, um, being uh, being being a man, you know, made no one give me really a second look. Um, in terms of being in that room, I just des- I was I deserve to be that room. I had a pass to be in that room simply by the nature of wh- what I looked like, um, and that has facilitated greatly my ability to just uh, to to absorb information and get into conversations with people because um, until they realize that I have weird ideas or um, that I'm not educationally credentialed, the default assumption is that I deserve to be there, and I think in a world um, that hasn't changed um, a lot of those other structures, um, but we relied less on educational educational credentials, I'd be concerned that um, it would be more and more people who looked like me who dominated those conversations. Um, that said, I mean, the flip side of that, of course, is that educational credential needs to be much more accessible and needs to be um, designed more to fit the lives of those kinds of people who we'd want to have in those conversations to people who are alienated from conventional academia in the way that it's structured and the way that um, the default uh, life is assumed to be the life of uh, upper middle class white guy. Um, and I think, you know, education definitely needs to be structured in, in, in different ways. And, you know, there should, I think there should be an option to, uh, for, people who struggle with conventional education, like myself, um, to, you know, be able to submit work alternatively, submit something that is equivalent of a dissertation um, to get to get a PhD or um, enter into sort of, you know, some sort of uh, inter- internship and apprenticeship process along with that dissertation to gain some of those other skills, especially, you know, um, pedagogical skills. I mean, I think I think there, we can design better and more alternative pathways. We can make it financially much more accessible. We can make academia much more culturally accessible. But I do think educational institutions do play um, in an important role in that there's these other sets of institutions um, and structures that will dominate if education steps out of the way. It's hmm. a really wonderful analysis. Thank you for, for sharing that. 
Um, I have one more question on this topic, and then I'd love to talk about the Bloomberg profile a little bit. Um, it's just wondering, like, so much of the analysis in your publication appears through this lens of modern monetary theory, um, which please correct my summary if I, I get anything wrong here, but uh, just this idea that governments um, essentially have a monopoly on being able to print money and therefore can always issue more as opposed to the current mainstream narrative that new spending plans need to be pay, quote unquote paid for by citizens um, through taxes or, or other um, sources. And, and and so like as an outsider to this topic, it seems like the underlying concepts have been around for a while, but um, modern monetary theory in its modern form has been this growing movement in the past few years. Um, and it feels like there's sort of like this, especially with the recent pandemic and the memes that have come out of it, I'm feeling like this is sort of like a sign of tastes that are shifting. Um, can you just like help us characterize like where has the growth of that interest been taking place? Um, is this happening in academic circles or elsewhere? Um, where are, are these sort of like new ideas being shared? Yeah. Um, so first, I'll, you know, give my little quick uh, um, spiel on MMT um, is... Uh, it's definitely a focus on the capacity of the federal government to create money. Um, but it's not simply, you know, oh, you know, you can we can print money rather than issuing uh, issuing bonds. It's really a kind of reframing about how the system already works, that we already always rely on um, money finance. Um, and it's just complicated and convoluted with these sets of institutions that the public doesn't really understand. Um, and then there's this instrument, this the government treasury security, which people think of as this national debt, the scary thing that's going to, you know, burden our grandchildren, really is serving this monetary policy role. It's, it's serving a role in the Federal Reserve's complicated world of, um, of interest rates and um, fi- financial conditions, and isn't... Um, isn't serving this kind of conventional role of, well, you need to go find the money uh, somewhere. It's, it's serving this different purpose. Um, and when you look at it that way, it kind of, there's, there's a whole reframing you can do about how monetary policy works, how fiscal policy works, um, and even how non-financial regulation, how environmental regulation and health and safety regulation works um, that, that provide a different lens for thinking about how economic policy can work, can work and how we can um, provision resources, how we can um, marshal physical resources to accomplish things that we want to do, like responding to the coronavirus depression and responding to the, the, the pandemic. Um, uh, that, so that's, you know, my you know, capsule spiel of MMT. Obviously, you know, you can read the Substack, and there's a lot more detail that you can go into, and I could suggest specific posts um, as introductory things. Um, but that's that's the the, the the heart of it for me. Um, and I think the reason that MMT has gotten more influential is simply because it got some prominence after the 2008 financial crisis for um, and the eurozone crisis for having. Um, correct things to say about those crises you know before um before mmt there wasn't really a recognition that um countries in europe had given up um quite a valuable thing by giving up giving up their own currencies and relying on the euro and mmt kind of provided a coherent analysis which i think has stood the test of time and um just over the years simply uh its predictions have held up while other predictions 
um, didn't didn't succeed. And so, you know, as time goes on, and as these other predictions turn out to be wrong about how the national debt's going to explode at any time, how you know interest rates are about to explode, and you know, yeah, you know, uh, disrupt everything, how we're going to have hyperinflation. You know, all these sort of predictions, how they haven't come true, how, you know, ideas like the Trump tax cuts have meant well, meant that the U.S. government couldn't respond to the next recession. These things have clearly proven not to be true. Um, and so MOT is kind of winning that battle of attrition, where at the same time, people are more and more recognizing that there are urgent problems, which we would want uh to use government spending to alleviate um, that uh, that you kind of uh, you know don't otherwise have a strong justification for why we why would we be able to do that without say raising tax cut taxes a bunch or um, cutting spending in other places especially uh, crises like climate change but of course right now the coronavirus depression um, and so I think in that in, in that time period where MMT has had these, you know, set of successful predictions. Other, other sets of predictions haven't uh, fared as well, and um, the problems are seen uh, are more and more correctly seen as having the urgency that they have. Um, the, you know, the scales uh, are are shifting um, uh, in 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 one direction towards. Uh, MMT. I mean, I think there's also is just um, more and more recognition that the U.S. specifically the U.S. dollar isn't going anywhere because we've had you know yet another crisis where the crisis happens and there is um, a flight to safety, uh, a flight to you know uh, countries uh, to to uh, foreign countries wanting to buy up, uh, uh, buy, um, you know. Get, get safety to the U.S., other countries having these shortages of dollars because they um, need access to basic necessities as the global depression took hold, and the U.S. yet again stepping up to respond to that crisis um, and to lend to um, governments around the world um, in order to respond to that crisis. And, you know, in that moment, people kind of have an explanation, want to look for explanations for why that's happening when if you took the conventional view that big budget deficits meant the dollar is going to collapse, um, it doesn't, the, the exact opposite happening yet again for the second time in a decade, it's hard to understand otherwise. Got it. That makes sense. Um, thank you. I'd love to chat about the um, Bloomberg profile that came out on early July. Um, you kind of blew up after this profile came out um, kind of being an, an understatement. Um, you stated that getting that profile piece changed your life forever and, and for the better. Um, and just for context for some of the folks that are listening to this, um, there's a line in the profile itself where um, they talk about your numbers a little bit. And they say that you have um, 40, 450 subscribers at the time of the profile, um, netting you uh, $45,000 a year. Um, and then the article came out and that sort of like order of magnitude just shifted completely. Um, you mentioned on your Substack a week and some change later that you had gained another 1,300 subscribers on top of that um, 450. Um, yeah, what was that experience like for you? I mean, unbelievable. I mean, it's, it, honestly, it was just so overwhelming that... Um, I couldn't, I couldn't really handle it. Um, I was, you know, that, that, that Friday after the profile, 
I got 388 subscribers, you know, almost the total of what I had had up to the profile. Um, and that was just unbelievable, just, just completely unbelievable. I and mean, to the point where I like, I had to try to like get a handle of, you know, this is real, this is happening. You know, I had that, that whole, that whole weekend, I had a bunch of phone calls with friends just to like try to calm me down. And then, you know, it's, it's, it was such a, um, increase in scale of what I was doing, um, that I had to, you know, I had this panic that I had to constantly, I had to do a whole bunch of things. I had to like instantly hire people to, you know, to, to, to do things and, um, you know, figure out a way to, um, to, to, to get some of the attention that I had onto other people. Um, and I, um, and, and that was kind of overwhelming. I mean, it really took me until um, probably like five days after the profile to um, to really handle it and get and get control and be able to process that it was happening because um, it was so fast. Um, and I, it, was, it was like it was it felt like everything all at once because like I went out to breakfast and I someone like recognized me from the profile at breakfast like they were on their bike going by the outside uh, restaurant I was it was in their outside seating and he stopped from his bike to congratulate me wow um, and then I got up um, I paid my bill walked up to 8th Avenue from where I was living at the uh, at the time and there was someone who was like at the same sidewalk and was looking over at me and I was like, this can't be real. And he stopped and asked me if, you know, I just had a profile published on me. And then he asked me for a selfie. Uh, oh my gosh. And it was, so that, there was two um, people who recognized me from the profile within eight minutes of each other. And that just was just so much. That was like, that was, that felt like reality was collapsing in on itself and just folding. And the, like the simulation was glitching. And I just like, that completely blew my mind. Um, and fortunately, you know, I didn't get recognized again um, from the profile since. But that, you know, <laughs> two within eight minutes of each other was just, was just unbelievable. Um, and I, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was totally, I mean, so honestly, like a lot of it was just like so overwhelming that I had to deal with it. But of course, you know, once I had processed those feelings and kind of, you know, no, this is real, this is happening. You've, you've had this uh, big success. Um, then it was, you know, that was okay. That was, I, I could, I could, you know, uh, start really seriously planning on what, on what my long-term goals, uh, uh, were and you know ultimately you know this is great now I can uh, pay guest writers which I'm doing and um, I have hired a freelance journalist to do some investigative some uh, smaller investigative reporting for me um, I'm you know I'm in the process of getting the Substack translated into Spanish and having a Spanish version of the Substack um, that will. Uh, you know, that will translate my archive and then catch up to the current posts. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm in, I'm in the process of really, you know, expanding, uh, expanding in that way. And, you know, now I can have the potentiality of 
turning uh, what originally was just the Nathan Tankis show into uh, a full-fledged publication that becomes a platform for alternative economics ideas for the big audience that I now have. So cool. I'm sitting here getting like a total contact high just listening to your story. I wonder, like, I mean, just like, I'm hearing this like mix of emotions from you. Uh, did, did this article make you feel lucky or like this total loss of control? Because I mean, like, it's like this experience that can happen to writers where, you know, like literally one endorsement or major piece of coverage can just completely change their lives. And I can imagine that being both thrilling, but also like kind of disorienting. Yeah, it was definitely disorienting. I mean, it was thrilling, but it was also disorienting. I mean, it was just, you know, like, um, yeah, luckily I had a, friend, a writer friend of mine who already had a large Twitter following. Because that was the other thing is my, my Twitter following went from like 14,000 to like 80,000. And now it's like a little uh, like a little under 89,000. And like it was coming so quickly. Like I was getting Twitter followers faster than my heart was beating. Just like in and out every moment uh, 24 hours. Because also it was getting translated in all these different languages. Um, and luckily, a Twitter follower, a friend of Twitter, a friend of mine, someone has a Twitter, who's a friend of mine, um, reminded you know I messaged and asked them how do you deal with it, and they reminded me that you can turn off notifications from people you don't follow. And I smart move. Yeah. I, 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 I had to do that, and as, as soon as I did it, it was like instant calm. It was like oh, I'm having normal experience that I um, that 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 I have. Uh, that, that I would have had before, you know, it was, and it was still, you know, so much interaction. It was, and I started following more people. So I, you know, would get notifications when I turned them off that, that it was, it was like my normal set of interactions from before. Um, you can tell you how crazy, you know, the spotlight was, was on me at the time. Um, but yeah, you know, it, it definitely is um, a feeling of not having any control of, of what's going on. And then you, I kind of yo-yoed between these, big plans of like basically using every single dime that had come in the door um and maybe even more um to going no you know who, gotta wait and see exactly what's gonna happen with all this you know i'm pretty confident that i can sustain it up until this point I, I i didn't i didn't fall below where i was um at the peak uh and you know and you know kind of done a more steady slow growth uh since then um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm taking a kind of more wait and see approach still, you know, uh, you know, paying guest writers now and, and such, but, um, kind of, you know, the way I'm exercising control now is kind of keeping this big buffer between uh, what I could be putting out the door and what I am putting out the door, um, in, and in terms of expanding the publication and, you know, see, uh, how things go over the next uh, six months or so. Um, yeah, but I mean, I'm, I'm confident about it still sustaining growth, but now, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing where like the, the, the jump up, the discontinuous jump up, you know, you can't control, but you can control what you do with it and what you try to do with it. And, um, and kind of sustaining this slower pace, um, from then on. And, you know, that's kind of how I've kind of regains control but yeah no it's a feeling of extraordinary luck obviously i did a lot of work to to get to this point but you know definitely also extraordinarily lucky to have the relationships that i have i mean i'm like you know i have a lot of i have a lot of bloomberg journalist friends and you know peter coy the person who, who authored the profile isn't one of them um but i've definitely kind of been more of a fixture in 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 that 
in that space, both in Twitter and sometimes in person. And that, you know, that, that changes things, you know, if I was an outsider to, to that group and if say Weisenthal tweeted out my pieces, but um, just tweeted it out as like someone who just liked what someone was putting out and not just someone who believed in my work, but also was a friend. Um, do I get the Bloomberg profile? I don't know. Um, and ultimately, you know, in some sense, you can think of that as also work as, you know, I, I, of course. I, I had, you know, I had lunches, dinners and going out to drinks with uh, a crew of journalist friends for, you know, almost two years before, uh, before the Bloomberg profile comes out. But, you know, on the other hand, yeah, how many people will get that, that kind of opportunity? You know, it's, it's so it's, it's a back and forth. You, 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 there's, you, I can argue it from almost any position, but, you know, there's definitely is a, a huge, huge element of luck involved. And also, you know, the resources, frankly, to still be out there, still be putting my thoughts out there without, you know, having the big um, and being able to wait for the big day where I blew up. I'm still just so like, I guess, struck by this line um, from the profile where they're just talking about, you know, making 45,000 a year. And, um, and then they say like, you know, you think he can, he thinks he can earn another 20,000 from other speaking and writing engagements. And it just feels so like, um, it's just, it's sort of like, I don't know, I, I love just the seeing where that was at the time that you published it. And then sort of like where you're at now, uh, do you feel like you were setting just given all, everything that happened after that, do you feel like you were setting your sights too low before? Um, or is that just sort of like where it was? Um, I'm just like wondering if there's some learning here about like writings being able to set their ambitions like higher than they had previously thought possible. I mean, I don't think there's any way to really set your ambitions. I mean, I was slowing down before um, before the profile came out. I was like netting one or two. I felt like, I think there was like a few days before where I got four subscribers in a day and was happy about that because it hadn't like been like that for a, for 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 a couple of weeks um i i think you know it's the kind of thing you can't plan for i mean i think my plans and my thought process at the time was reasonable i think you know i think and i i think you know there was a way in which this profile um could have been written differently where i got 100 subscribers from it rather than you know 1350 or whatever that that boost i said in the piece was um you know that easily could have been what happened um and the yeah i mean that's that that that's that that's all there is 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 to it really i mean like i i you know i i think i was on a reasonable pathway to get to a hundred thousand i mean like you know even just you know to talk about having being friends with uh joe i mean joe went in and changed the headline um around noon <laughs> of that uh of that day to um, punch it up. He, 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 um, he's the, he's the one who put, who went from, um, like, you know, uh, like originally was like credentials don't matter on the internet, you know, just as Nathan Tank is a subscriber or whatever the original headline was. Um, and he punched it up to just like 20 year old uh, without a bachelor's degree has blah, blah, blah following or whatever the, the updated headline was. And that was the headline that, um, really took off and went and went global. And they also, you know, the article was succeed. You know, a lot of it is just uh, Bloomberg has the has the best SEO in the business. Um, they they're far and away. I mean, partially it's also just specifically having a profile. In Bloomberg is not is is distinct from having a profile in any other publication, even the New York Times. Um, and um, 
there and you know they have the system where you know, an article is doing well enough they push it more you know friday night part of the reason why my subscriptions that friday were so crazy is they push notifications the article to people's phones and uh and devices um and that's just i mean you can't you know, I mean, you, you, you can't pay for that kind of publicity to literally have it show up on someone's smartwatch or something, which I saw some funny screenshots of or some funny pictures of. Um, that's, you know, that's the kind of profile that you, they, they, you, I mean, it's, it's impossible to put a value on. Um, and, or I guess it is possible, but, you know, it's, it's extremely, extremely valuable. Um, and that's just so unique and something, you know, you can't, just uh, try to replicate it. The best you can do is just put your work out there and um, build all the relationships you can and hope that you take off at some point. But it's definitely not something you can plan for. I will say my experience is that if you're writing about something timely that a lot of people care about, um, even without that kind of big big blow up, um, a kind of slow and steady consistency um, can do a lot for you. Um, I think I took advantage. I did the right, I played my moment very well. I wrote, you know, almost every weekday for the first month at a time when, you know, crisis, which is very fast moving, um, and was able to take advantage of that to have a real big growth initially and not have any of the sort of growing pains that other publications have. Um, and, uh, then wrote pretty consistently from, from then on. But, I think, you know, my experience, I think if, if you're writing about something that has a large enough, there's a large enough potential audience, um, consistently putting out pieces twice a week, um, you can, you can build an audience and you might be building an audience slower than the, uh, than I did. Um, but you know, if you, if you have the time to devote to it, I think you can eventually, uh, build it to where there is a decent, um, or you can get a decent income out of it, assuming that you real that you have the depth of knowledge to sustain a twice twice a week publication, where any individual piece could potentially be interesting to people. That's right. I mean, yeah, you were writing for four months um, before that sort of crazy spike and, and growing consistently um, up up until then. It sounds like so. Um, you've touched on this a little bit, uh, but I'm wondering, like what you think success looks like for an independent writer does having more paid subscriptions mean that it has to turn into full-time publication versus versus just sort of like being yourself and continuing to write as you are um like does that change the relationship that you have to your readers if you do kind of turn it more into this publication i mean i think i mean i could have just kept on going um the way i was um you know <laughs> Frankly, making $180,000 a year is nothing to sneeze at. Um, that's not something that could really sit well with me. Um, oh, I, I, you know, it's, first of all, that's more money than I could possibly imagine having anything to do with. Um, and second, uh, you know, obviously I want to be successful, but I have broader goals. Um, and so, you know, sitting on $180,000 income uh, while... You know, just because I'm having personal success doesn't mean anything's changing with this crisis. I mean, the unemployment insurance benefits as we speak have expired. And um, based on my my previous knowledge of the subject and also what my investigative journalist is digging up, um, 
even if they pass the bill, even if they pass the bill while we uh, have been doing this interview, um, that isn't sufficient. Um, that a lot of people are going to have their benefits cut off, and some of them, you know, it, it could take months for them to to get their benefits. And some people still hadn't straightened out their benefits for March. Um, so uh, I can't, you know, sit sit by when I potentially have the possible within reach of hiring investigative journalists to um, to dig up more materials on this and really push the issue on the, on on this topic and bringing guest writers to write about timely and important stuff uh, as well. I mean, I just, I, there's just no, uh, you know, growing a publication is about lets me have more influence and more influence, you know, can change that. And even if I, you know, don't say change anything about on, on, on a, on a big scale about unemployment insurance, even small minor changes to legislation, you know, we're talking about really outsized impact for, the amount of money I'm talking about investing, you know, there there are companies that expend millions and millions and millions of dollars to get relatively minor uh, administrative rulemaking changes from different government agencies, not even uh, congressional legislation. So, I just um, there's just I mean, for me personally, when you get to that scale, it's I I I I can't imagine doing anything else, but trying to make it um bigger um you know i mean the other alternative which you know i certainly going to do some of which is just you know donating a bunch to a nonprofit i believe in but um overall uh yeah i, I mean I, i'm trying i for me this is has has i, I want to be able to eat but uh this has much more been about trying to exercise some influence and the 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 money is nice, but it's a poor substitute for for that unless I can directly plow it into trying to have more influence what's going on and produce research and evidence of a lot of, uh, a lot of the dysfunction uh, that's happening. Yeah, yeah. No, I really like that framing. Um, one of the things that you mentioned that you're getting after after this recent growth is an editor. Um, I'm curious, like as a independent writer who's very much valued for your counterintuitive thinking and writing. Um, what do you think the value is of having an editor? Um, I mean, the edit, um, not having an editor has been the biggest frustration, was the biggest frustration um, going into this. I mean, that was the biggest thing I wanted to, to do. That was the thing I was unsatisfied with my income at the time was, you know, to me, 65,000 a year is fine to live on. Um, except, uh, I would keep on having to put out stuff that doesn't have editing. I mean, you just everyone needs an editor. I I, I firmly don't believe in uh, in unedited writing. I did it because uh, it was a it was a necessity at the time. Um, but you know, I think you know for me, I'm, I'm other people might not notice, but even just the the few pieces that have come out since I've been using an editor, I think are dramatically improved for having an editor, having that checkup, you know, getting rid of distracting spelling errors, but also restructuring the piece the pieces to um be more forceful uh convincing um to be more accessible um i think you know for me you know i i'm i get final say on what the version is you know i send my piece to my editor and then i get edits back in suggestion mode i accept or don't accept the suggestions and then i look it over one last time to see if there's anything missing so 
you know, and there's some edits that don't fit my voice. And so I don't accept those edits, but, but I also can just even take the idea of what they were going for, uh, or, or what, what she was going for and, and, and change it. So I, I think just editing is the absolute necessity for writing. And I, I, you know, I, I don't really think that editing is something that you, that you, that you can really get by with on a, on a long-term basis. So, you know, obviously, you know, if Substack isn't your, is, 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 is kind of writing an outlet for your more free flowing stuff. And obviously, you know, I was able to be successful without having an editor. So it's not the absolute necessity to have success, but, um, as a writer who takes writing seriously, I, I don't think I could spend years staring at my own, write my own unedited writing forever. I mean, I, I just, at some point I would need really want an editor. Um, and I think it's crucial, and especially now that I'm growing, you know, and edit, editing, uh, now helps provide a more consistent voice across uh, guest posts and my own posts. And, um, yeah, I mean, I just, I think editing is an absolute essential uh, piece of writing. Totally. And especially if you're just, especially maybe when you're writing alone and you're not, it's it's good to have someone just to like look at your stuff and someone to bounce ideas around with. Um, last thing I want to touch on before we wrap up um, is just the fact that you also experimented with a few different models for paid subscriptions. And so like in the beginning, I believe you had uh, donations only and the sort of pitch was, you know, if you want to extra financially support me, um, go ahead. Um, and at some point you started offering premium content into, in, in addition to your free stuff. Um, it seems like you kind of had this mindset shift at some point as going from thinking about paid subscriptions as this like extra financial support to someone actually paying for a service. Um, just wondering for people that are listening, um, can you share any of your learnings there just in terms of, I don't know, like how did your psychology evolve around that? Yeah. So, I mean, my initial thinking was I just like, I, I felt like I couldn't justify taking money from someone unless I could show that um, I was going to purchase consistently uh, right? Because frankly, you know, I've, I've blogged before where I dropped off and it was very inconsistent and I wasn't going to charge anyone, especially something that could potentially also have yearly subscriptions if I wasn't sure I wasn't going to be consistent with it. Um, but the attention was so immediate and so big and my email list was getting so big that I realized quickly, I mean, first of all, I could write every day and once you've done like eight posts in 10 days or whatever, or eight posts in a week, you've shown that you're, you're consistent and you believe in it. Um, and, um, and second, I just, uh, I knew, I knew that the audience was there, uh, to, to, to provide financial support. Um, and you know, you know, I, I didn't realize the extent to which Joe would, you know, immediately start tweeting out pieces and that I would get this immediate rush of attention from, from it, from the very first piece. I mean, um, the, the first piece that wasn't just like a glorified Facebook post, like one where I literally turned the, created the Substack um, so that I could have a place to put this Facebook post that I wrote on the crisis just for like my friends, essentially, my Facebook friends. Um, the first post that I, after that um, was a post about where we already heading towards a recession and that got over 10,000 uh, unique views, which is crazy. Um, and largely because of Joe picked the perfect sentence to tweet out and tweeted it out. So that, I mean, that was, that was kind of, so I knew I, 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 I learned very quickly that, that I had a huge audience that I did, uh, 
that I didn't realize, or what felt huge at the time. Now it's kind of you know, the scale is even so much bigger than it than it was then. Um, I think the th- the biggest thing I think I learned is, yeah, that that people don't think of it as just like giving you money. They like they like oh I, I want this person to have an income. I mean that was my big fear when the Substack had gotten so big. I was like, well, people can do the math. People can figure out have some sense of what's going on um, that they know that I'm, or at least in my head, you know, this is more money than any one person should have. Obviously, you know, I have a big finance audience and I'm sure a lot of them would listen to this and go, what are you talking about? Um, When, you know, I'm calling, you know, $150,000 more money than God or whatever. Um, But uh, for, for me, I just, I couldn't in good conscience tweet about, subscribe to my Substack or whatever um, when my annualized income was was that high. The only way I could justify it was that I could, you know, make a commitment that that money was going elsewhere. Um, so that, I mean, that was, and, and what I, and yeah, what I learned in doing that was that, yeah, people see it as they're um, paying for a service. Um, and I would say the lesson to take from that isn't necessarily, oh, then you need to be doing uh, premium posts all the time. People think that they're paying for a service, even if the posts mm. are free. Um, you know, I think I think generally there there are a lot of people who they like paid content, but if they have a feeling the X or Y thing that I like isn't gonna um, happen without me providing financial support to it, they'll do it. And that's why, you know, publications like the American Prospect or the Nation or whatever, they can get monthly recurring donations from people as well, even when all the writing is publicly available. Um, So um, while I do think, you know, it's, you you should, you should realize that, that, or the potential audience of this should realize that people are thinking in terms of paying for a service that doesn't necessarily mean you need to make everything about premium content, at least in my experience, especially if people see the value of the conversation that you engage with by having publicly available posts or mostly publicly available posts. Um, and they, and, and, and if they think it's timely and important, you know, if, if you're writing, you know, for example, um, uh, petition, who I believe is ranked number six or number se- seventh, the most highly paid uh, uh, Substack. Um, um, they're the, the the work they put out. You know that is a mostly paid subscription type of work, um, and I think their pricing reflects that um, as well as their their posted schedule because you're, you're talking about an, you know a, a, a relatively big but a um, specific bankruptcy audience that isn't trying to influence, like, you know, do what I'm trying to do, which is stop the wave of bankruptcies. They want more in, inside information on on corporate restructurings, on what's going on, um, all, are largely because of their own um, investment decisions or purchasing decisions and so on. Um, and that's the kind of work that you're looking, that you don't necessarily see a ton of value in having a, a ton of publicly available information. So I think, you know, thinking about your audience that way about do the, do people think they're getting their kind of personal benefit for, uh, from your work or whether they see some public value in your writing, I think really is the biggest determinant whether you think you should uh, be doing mostly paid posts uh, or mostly free. That said, you know, it all depends on your audience and, you know, 
many audiences have many different kind of views on this. But, you know, I am also kind of believe in publicly available content. So the, the more I can avoid putting a paywall on something or that the paywall just becomes like a preview of content, um, that's, um, that's my preference. That's great advice. Thank you for joining and chatting with me. Um, where should people find you if they want to follow your work? Of course. Um, well, I mean, the most obvious one, uh, of course, uh, would be nathantankus.substack.com, um, where you can find all the writing that we've been talking about. Um, and of course, uh, at Nathan Tankus um, on Twitter. That's, that's the main place. I'm not anywhere else or not publicly anywhere else. Please don't go look for my Facebook. Don't. Um, my LinkedIn is just to look up people who subscribe to essentially subscribe uh, to the Substack. It's not something that I'm accepting people on. Um, my Instagram is locked, and please leave it. Please leave it alone. <laughs> um, uh, I th- those are my my public uh, my, my my public places. My public places are um, Substack um, and Twitter and. That plus other publications uh, that I write for, which you know, hopefully is a growing audience, uh, a growing group group all the time. Um, that's where I'm at. Fantastic, thank you. 